Welcome to Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. On this episode, we're digging back into the vault to a spring 2016 conversation Joe, Misha, and Ben had with Dr. Carol Mason of Columbia University. Topics they'll cover include how the brain wires together during early developments, the evolving landscape of neuroscience research over the years, and Dr. Mason's advice for prospective graduate students. Welcome to the show. Today we're joined by Professor Carol Mason from Columbia University. She's a professor in the Department of Pathology at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and she's here to talk to us today about her work uh, in the developing nervous system, uh, how to run a graduate program, the future of neuroscience. She's going to tell us how uh, how to make everything work great. Uh, so, Carol, Rob. welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So we know a little bit about what you do. Well, I know a lot about what you do because you actually directed the grad program that, that I went to. Um, so I, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the problem of axon guidance uh, in the developing nervous system. Why is it that when all of the brain cells in a, an organism come into be, they're not already just hooked up and perfectly wired? Why does an organism need to develop in the first place? Well, various tissues and regions of the brain develop, and as they are demarcated and defined uh, sort of structurally, the nerve cells are still dividing. And when they divide and, and, and multiply, they do so as little globs. They just have a cell body and a nucleus, but uh, they need to, as specialized cells, they're the most specialized cells our body has probably, develop long processes or um, projections called axons. And at the end of those axons, um, the axons can split up into a, a ramified um, tree and uh, make lots, each one of the ends of those processes make synaptic connections or a synapse. At the other end, um, they develop shorter tree-like projections and those are the dendrites. The dendrites receive um, impulses from synapses made onto them. So this, the process of making the, ac of developing the axons and the dendrites can take many days, weeks in fact. And so um, as they grow out, the tips of the individual axons, called growth cones, have to find their way, literally, over sometimes some rough patches of territory. Um, and they have to know whether they should go straight or turn right or left, or which areas they cannot enter and are see, uh, perceived barricades. Um, and they do so by having chemical receptors to molecules that are on the cells and even the substrates, that is the non-cellular pathways, um, that they either like growing on, that is in a sort of um, growth-promoting interaction, or a, an inhibitory interaction. So we say that they can be repulsed by certain factors. So. We're just, uh, I would say in the last 20 years, we've learned so much about, um, in every region of the nervous system, what those 
receptors are and what the molecules or the ligands to those receptors are. Um, and we, many families have been defined of those molecular factors. Um, and most of what has gone on in the last 20 years or 20 or 30 years has been that we've defined which axons or which nerve cells um, find um, uh, which molecules excitatory or inhibitory. For the eye, uh, which is what we work on, the retina, we know that in humans, about half the nerve cells coming from the eye that link to the brain actually grow um, to the same side of the brain, and the other half grow across the midline of the nervous system axis to the other side of the brain. This sort of bilateral projection is the basis for binocular vision. In mice, which are very poor binocular creatures, or they see very poorly in stereo vision, only about 5% of the nerve cells grow ipsilaterally or to the same side. And so um, we started by looking at that group of nerve cells because we thought they were, they were very, very few, but they're very readily defined because they're found in a certain sector of the retina, always the same ventrotemporal sector. So we began and we studied them uh, in both how they grow. We actually videoed them in isolated preparations of brain. Um, and we, by a process of a, a, a detective work and elimination, found a certain family of receptors and their ligands, the receptors being in those cells, and ligands being right at the midline of the optic chiasm, which is where the traffic circle is. and. Um, those ligands are found, uh, and the receptors are found only in a couple of days during embryonic development in the mouse when this process of inhibition by the midline takes place. So this was cool. It was uh, one of the first one receptor, one ligand. And um, another thread in all of this research, not just in our system, but in the spinal cord midline, which is very another popular system to study, um, we and others identified transcription factors that control the expression of these receptors in this particular subset of retinal ganglion cells that stay on the same side of the brain. Now, this was a, a very nice um, menu of a sort of genetic program for the growth and guidance of these particular subset, this particular subset. For the contralateral axons, what we found and what others have being uh, others are identified finding to date is that there's a consortium of receptors and of factors that um, the axons encounter, and this enables them to cross through the midline, which is packed full of nasty elements, <laughs> things that inhibit the growth, even of the ones that are going to go to the other side. And so the consortium of molecules are things like Ig cams, uh, cell adhesion molecules that modify the inhibitory response and essentially give the axons a pass to cross through. Um, there have been two studies in the last published in the last six months, one from Mark Tessie Levine's lab in the spinal cord, another from Archer Kania's lab, he was formerly with Tom Jessel, showing that formerly separate guidance factors and their receptors now interact. They cross over and in a sort of dizzy, slightly dizzying <laughs> way. Um, 
And so, as in everything, things are much more complicated than they seemed to us 10 years ago. So the map for these neurons, for these uh, growth cones that have to uh, get through the midline in the visual system, through the optic chiasm, decide yes. whether they need to decussate to the other yes. side or stay on the same yes. side, we're finding out that the cues are incredibly complicated. The cues interact not only with the growth cones themselves, but with each other as well. Yes. And of course, uh, the growth cones themselves are also different in lots of various minute ways. Yes. And when uh, when you're thinking about your approach to this, are you more interested in the the visual pathway by itself, or are you looking at uh, at the visual pathway as a general model for axon guidance? Uh, the latter, but with the visual pathway itself, there are two new issues that we and others are looking at. Um, the first is. How do those retinal ganglion cells, which seem sort of similar all across the retina, um, become defined? What genes do they inherit to make them, so, make them different in their guidance? Okay, But the other problem, which has been studied for 50 years, even 100 years, if you start with Ramon y Cajal and uh, the founding fathers of neuroscience, is how do those endings, once they get back to the brain, know which cells to synapse with and form what we call maps of the sensory world? So the nasal retina will project to a different part of the um, thalamus where they end and the superior colliculus, which is the hindbrain where they connect in certain very... Um, prescribed ways, and if they don't project to the right part of their synaptic territory, uh, vision is impaired, right? So we are trying to, in our lab, we've moved to understanding the birthing or the genesis of the ganglion cells and what, where the two different populations come from, whether they divide uh, in distinct periods and who comes first. Turns out that in many systems, in the spinal cord and the cortex, when you're born is who you become and where you go, where you migrate to, where you connect. Um, so we're studying that. And then at the other end, we're trying to study how the axons are organized just before they get to their targets. Just as so many wires, I'm looking at a lot of wires that connect these microphones to the computers. Uh, they're pretty neat and coiled up one type versus another. We're finding in the visual system, and this was studied again 30 years ago by crew techniques, that the ipsilateral or same side axons are bundled together and the contralateral ones are. But then if you look to see where they've come from and when they've grown, there are other maps that are superimposed on these ipsi-contra maps, and we're trying to understand how that works. The main uh, I would say prospectus of all this work has come to the fore recently because we're trying to figure out if we're going to implement regeneration of the optic system, if you will, we've got to know all these rules during development. As we believe, as in any system that has to regenerate, 
in the central nervous system that you might have to recapitulate or reproduce what goes on in development. We're not quite sure about that. We're not quite sure if that's needed. But the difficulty but there, uh, like you mentioned earlier, is because when all these systems are developing, the cues yes. and, and road signs essentially right. that are in place are completely that's, different than when you're an adult. They're completely different. The glial cells, the um, cells that we think are accessory to nerve cells, change. They are immature and have different shapes and molecules early, and then they um, are quite um, non-supportive to growth later. There are other new kinds of glia that we're discovering, or the field is discovering, microglia, which can help growth and also are involved in pruning or the overgrowth that occurs late in development in every part of the brain. So we're trying to figure out um, how we could make the nerve cells grow and what the environment has to be like. Are there efforts to revert the, the adult nervous system back to a, mm -hmm. a state where soluble factors around the cells right. are, are more similar to early embryonic development? Right. Um, well, there was a, a meeting just before last year's Society for Neuroscience. It was a workshop, which I attended and helped organize, actually. And uh, this was one of the ideas. And um, the National Institute has actually put a call out for grants to do some of this work. But um, we're trying to come up with ideas about how to do that. <laughs> well, a recent paper came out um, from Zhigang He's lab at Harvard uh, in collaboration with Josh Sains. And um, it was a magnificent attempt to um, to get axons to regrow, but they did mechanistically their model. The model to date has been to go in and literally crush the optic nerve. And this has been done in rats and mice, and it turns out that's clinically not. It doesn't ever happen that the optic nerve gets crushed because <laughs> it's encased in the skeleton. Um, so they decide, and uh, when. Um, done this, they and others have done this, the axons, if stimulated by either growth factors or uh, Zhigang's early work, um, showed that if you block the mTOR pathway, which is a, a protein synthetic pathway that um, they were able to, or, or, or stimulate transcription factors that are found early but not late, you can get the axons to regrow, but they get stumped at the optic eyes and they can't make it through. So Zhigang went in and cut the axons right before they end in their target and got regrowth, really nice regrowth, when he stimulated with an insulin growth factor, um, let's see, stimulated activity, and did, it was a, a recipe of about four different steps and got really, really great growth and synaptic activity. I think they also optogenetically stimulated. The, mm, I mean, it, it was like a five panel set of experiments. It's amazing. Um, so uh, it's, it's going to be a challenge. Um, yeah. But the corollary is how many, if you've lost sight from stroke or um, even a, a retinal injury, partial, right, a little lesion, how many nerve cells do you need to regenerate to get vision? I and mean, we have no idea. Mm -hmm. So maybe that, that was overkill in the experiment <laughs> you mentioned. Well, I've, you know, uh, personally, I've thought that I, I've actually seen this field as potentially converging with 
sort of the bioengineering field, right? Yes. There's a a pretty large, in, in, in maybe the last decade or two, there's been a pretty large push to developing, um, for example, artificial retina because we the technology's gotten better, so we can build chips, and now I know you can you can in, you can even install them on, on degenerated retinas, and um, and this has been an interesting approach, but I've often thought that perhaps. The limitation is you can maybe develop a system to interface with the world and stimulate the neurons, but if there's any gen- degeneration or damage to the axons themselves, the retinal ganglion cells, then you may not be able to recapitulate the system as a whole, and you would have to use both these approaches potentially right. together in yes. order to generate a real, true therapeutic tool. Right. So in macular degeneration, the um, retinal pigment epithelial cells get clogged up with retin- with um, uh, lipof- lipofusion granules and the, re- the um, rods and cones, the photoreceptors, die off. And that's the beginning, and that's yeah. where the chips help. <laughs> but you're right, the, if you damage the retinal ganglion cells, you're in trouble. Um, so it will be interesting. Because I think I think there's a pro- the prospect that we can get the axons to regrow is perhaps is very good, but the prospect of having them reconnect properly is daunting because we don't really know in any system what molecules actually make one nerve cells axons match up with the correct target cells. Sometimes it's timing, but some, we believe that there are molecules out there that. And we can't Implement just this. nail one thing to the other thing. No, nope. or super okay. glue it. <laughs> super glue it. I wonder if, if this type of work has taught you anything about the function of this binocular vision circuit in, in the sense that there are a lot of different types of retinal mm-hmm. ganglion cells with different physiological properties. Some are direction selective, right. some are orientation yes. selective, maybe in mice. And, um, have you learned anything about maybe the different types of receptors that these different functional classes right. have? So or? I haven't, but actually, um, first of all, in the Zhigang He study I just mentioned, the remarkable thing was that the it's almost the only class of the 50-some types of retinal ganglion cells, and by types I mean morphologically different, functionally different, we think, um, and possibly genetically different cells that were able to regenerate after this cut near the targets were the alpha retinal ganglion cells, and they're very big. So they uh, regenerate magnificently, but nobody else does. So uh, Josh Sains and others are now um, using genetic lines in which one class or another is marked with a, a fluorescent protein, able to isolate those cells effects, sort them, or sort them by their fluorescence and do genetics on them. Gene profiling, either RNA-seq or do single cell profiling. I mean, the way is open now to do a lot of, gather a lot of this data. And the, the trick is going to be, um, what are the, you know, thousand or so genes that are different from one cell to another used for? And but, you know, it's early days, so. Right, right. Um, and now... If I could, I'd like to maybe share my ignorance a little bit, even as somebody who <laughs> works in a vision lab. Um, 
So I can kind of conceptualize in the visual system or in binocular vision why we want to have some cells projecting ipsilaterally to the same side or contralaterally to the other side. Maybe it's a way to share binocular information um, across hemispheres um, so that cells and maybe visual cortex ultimately have some binocular responses to them. Why do we have so much crossing of axons in all these other parts of the nervous system, like in the spinal cord and mm -hmm. things like that. Why does the nervous system want to cross over so much in general? Um, I have, uh, I get asked the question a lot, but there's <laughs> um, some thought that evolutionarily uh, for, for escape from predators, you'd want to cover both sides in a way. Um, other ideas are that uh, evolutionarily, um, this was the, this is, the, for example, in the lower, lower vertebrates and frogs, many frogs, or at least in tadpoles, fish, and so on, um, the pathways from the eye are totally crossed, and they are never, they're not binocular, but relates to where the eye is on the head and the visual system. The more lateral your eyes are versus being frontal, the fewer, um, Crossings. Though. Crossings you have. Yeah. Um, or the ipsy fewer ipsilateral cells you have. Yeah. Um, but it is uh, a conundrum. And I, I think actually in the chapter that Ramonica Hall wrote on the visual system, he was uncharacteristically waffling <laughs> in his discussion of, of crossing and not crossing. Well, you can forgive him for yeah. being the first one to <laughs> to really get in there. I feel like I need to figure this out. Maybe maybe it's not even maybe it's the wrong question to ask. I don't well, know. I don't know. It would be a fun topic to have for a sort of um, seminar, your mm -hmm, sure. hour journal club type seminar. You should get David Fitzpatrick, your leader, involved in this. He I, does love axons. I actually I need to him. get to the bottom of this. I'm glad there isn't really a good answer because that was a question on a final exam I took one time, <laughs> and I don't think. I got good points on that one. Yeah, so hopefully nobody did. Mm. Should it be why why do some creatures have un no crossings? I mean, isn't it maybe I have this wrong, but in mammals, isn't it the default to sort of have everything project contralaterally? So my right arm projects to the left side of my my brain mm. and all that. So isn't is it the the evolutionary default to just cross things over first and then Well, it depends on where you mean. So the two hemispheres of the brain are connected by a crossing. Oh, that's true. But yeah. there, there, I think you want coordination. And um, by the way, the somatosensory, the sensory cortex, the motor cortex cross over and send axons to the other side in both ways. But uh, by the way, they're very se separated. If you do a cross section through the corpus callosum and label the different areas. Mm. So it's another example actually of Cables that are bundled, bundled together. Bundled cables. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's really, really interesting. So you've been all over the country in your mm -hmm. career. You, you started out doing your PhD in zoology, which seems like a, uh, an uncommon route into neuroscience. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but how, how did you start out in zoology and end up well, in, in the zoology pathology. was the name of the department and now it does not exist uh, it was at university of california berkeley and it contained um faculty it was comprised of faculty who worked on everything from taxonomy 
evolutionary biology, ecology, down to cell biology. So it's everybody but plant biologists. Everything but plant biologists and uh, molecular biology was just starting in a separate department. Gunther Stent was spearheading that. So um, there were a lot of people who studied invertebrate marine biology. That's how I got my start. Uh, working at the Museum of Natural History on land crabs, and I was just discussing that on a Florida beach this morning. <laughs> um, some friends. And um, the uh, neuroscience was just happening. In fact, the Society for Neuroscience got its start and became the Society for Neuroscience about the same time, which is the early 70s. Um, and the folks who formed the society were taken from the Association of Anatomists, Association of Physiologists. It was a, a consortium of people who wanted to study the nervous system from all different angles. So at Berkeley, um, simple nervous systems were the thing. It was the phase craze. And, Some people um, still both. find that <laughs> to be their, their bread and, and butter. And uh, Stanford and Berkeley began to have evening seminars where people working on simple systems were gathering together. UC San Diego was another place where Eve Martyr, one of my great colleagues, studied. Um, and so um, people were beginning to try to define, uh, we figured if you could understand a very simple circuit where there were 10 nerve cells and they each had names and they were able to be dupe, you could find those same nerve cells in every single organism you looked in or sample uh, individual. Um, you'd be able to understand how the nervous system works. And of course, those are the early days of studying the worm, C. elegans, and uh, Drosophila. I happened to study the locust because it was bigger um, <laughs> and studied um, how the nerve cells were connected. It's what I was doing now. But you were able to inject individual cells with dyes, not the ones we use now, but procyon yellow and things like that, lucifer yellow. And you were able to understand connectivity. And I was also interested in the neurosecretory system, uh, in which uh, there were cells that were like our hypothalamus, but in the insect. Um, so neuroscience was just happening. And uh, I then changed my advisors from someone who did marine uh, invertebrate physiology to invertebrate neuroscience. And so and now the zoology department has been split up into the neuroscience department and other things at Berkeley. Wow, that's really... I mean, so you were there basically when neuroscience started to become a thing. Like when <laughs> yeah, all these exactly. people decided, like, hey, we're all kind of studying yeah. nervous systems. Maybe we should and form then, a, uh, a club. And then in another place I went, well, when I went to the University of Chicago for a postdoc, which is nice... Second postdoc, actually second postdoc, but third place. <laughs> so we moved our lab from Wisconsin to Chicago. A brain institute was set up. So people were also beginning to build buildings and or make separate units that just studied the nervous system. So uh, how could you describe kind of, I guess, the evolution of the field of neuroscience and, you know, uh, in this past time? Uh, like you said, now Society for Neuroscience was just kind of starting up. And now at the annual meetings, there's about 30,000 people and there's plenty of scientists who do it all over the world. So what's uh, what's it like? Was it really was there really a time that, uh, you know, a lot of people like to think that there was a golden age where you could do whatever you wanted? And then is it yeah. harder now, better now, worse now? Um, well, if you really want to read a wonderful account of this, go to the 
Society for Neuroscience website, and there's a, a good history of the society that was put together just last year with photographs and things. But it's it's marvelous. It's not too long. Again, you could have a evening presentation on it. Um, it was it was a little tricky. They didn't quite know how to organize themselves and where they should have their meetings and the usual kinds of things. But I think then um, the uh, categories of things they talked about aren't that much different if you think well, I mean, they've multiplied and they have many subdivisions. But um, I think there was there was no resistance in setting it up. Let's put it that way. What's happened now is that Gloriously, we have international members and other countries have their own um, societies. But I think that our society, if I must say so, might say so, is really the, the pre premier one, right? Um, but uh, what's happened is that certain subdivisions have come in and out of favor, right? So invertebrate model systems are not, except for C. elegans and Drosophila, have not been cultivated as much. Um, as you know, basic science for a while has been a little bit of, um, been on the, not on the downswing, but the numbers of, of abstracts and, and presentations of, at the society meetings, posters, for example, in development, which was huge five, 10 years ago, um, has dwindled. And one of the main reasons, and this happened during my tenure as president, is that lots of people started to apply their work toward the disease. Sometimes it was ready and easy, and sometimes it was forced, thinking that that's the only way they could get funding. So, um, but what, what happened was that if you had an abstract in the disease category, it went into a category called diseases of the nervous system, which mushroomed. And so, uh, those two or three years ago, of the thirty thousand, of the fifteen thousand presentations, it's usually about that number. Um, over five thousand, six thousand were in the disease category alone, and there were ten other categories. Right, so wow. development went down, uh, synapses and glia went down, disease went up. So last year we had lots of discussion and working with the program committee. Um, the program committee has now reconfigured all the categories and themes, so that de neurodevelopmental disease now will go into development, <laughs> okay? Motor system disorders will go into motor systems and so on. And I think that will give the membership even uh, a better sense of how and wh where neuroscience is today, which is that we still need to study, study basic mechanisms for basic understanding, but also to help solve disease. And so do you think it's a, it's a function of uh, certain things are easier to get grants for because they sound sexier, um, you know, especially when you're trying to get money from institutions that are not heavy neuroscience institutions? Well, uh, I think we've always paid lip service to why our, our work is important. But that's true. And there are many more disease foundations. Where, but Story Landis, who just stepped down as head of National Institutes Neurological Diseases and Strokes funds a lot of our work, um, wrote an interesting, was both a, an article on the uh, uh, her blog and also on the website. It's about a year ago. It was a study of how many, um, the success rate of basic, very basic, basic grants versus disease-oriented grants. And the success rate for the basic, basic grants was actually higher 
And I think stemmed from the fact that uh, people thought they needed to have a disease slant in their work. Um, and so it was very controversial when it came out. And I think that things have sort of settled down because the Brain Initiative, if we want to talk about that for a second, uh, starting from the Office of Science and Technology Policy from the Obama administration's um, office now two, three years ago, has in its prospectus, um, I think there's seven or seven to nine aims. And only the last few either have to do with human health or uh, understanding disease. In fact, there's very little slant on disease. And the first couple are purely descriptive, which has been, as you all know, the bane of many people's existence. The grant is not hypothesis-driven, but too descriptive. It's canned. So um, the the first aim is to categorize cells of the nervous system genetically, functionally, morphologically. I mean, that's a pretty big task. Right. But it's very basic. So I think that that encouraged people to come back to think about what we can do with new technologies. And of course, that was also the main theme of the Brain Initiative, to develop new technologies to to do these things. If you haven't read it, another document that's well worth looking at. It's called Brain, in capital letters, 2025. We actually had uh, (laughs) a couple of months back Uh, a bit of a discussion about this because I think with the Brain Initiative we were talking about what is the future of it going to be and and, uh, you know there's a certain amount of money that's publicly known to go towards neuroscience and is it like at a certain point, are people going to say, "Hey, you guys still haven't cured Alzheimer's? What are we? What are we giving you all this money for?" Uh, I think that was Joe's idea. I, I tended to disagree. No, no, but, <laughs> but it's a it's a really good question, and I think that um, the proposed budget was came out a few months ago. Actually, had nice increases for all of the institutes, the parts of NIH that fund us, but the National Institutes of Aging got the the biggest increase. It was something like thirty percent. So it is, but whether or not that budget will come to fruition, I wonder if, if, you know, for for our own curiosity, as people who attend the annual SFN meeting every year, present posters, get lost in the sea of Mm -hmm. neuroscientists, what? does the president of SFN do? Like, what is your role? When you get elected president, um, I, you know, other than being a, a very prestigious uh, honor, um, I imagine that because SFN is headquartered in Washington, D.C., maybe you interface with that aspect of it a little bit more, maybe on the science policy side, maybe it's geared towards sort of designing and helping shape the future of the Society okay. for Neuroscience. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, a, you become, well, first of all, you have a year, you're a year in training because you're president-elect and then you're president and then you're past president. So it's really a three-year stint. Um, Actually, usually. Sorry, yes. who who elects you? <laughs> the membership. Ever so, we did. So yeah, we did. We Apparently, did. we yes. did. I don't remember. Um, so the um, thing is that a lot of the students and postdocs don't ever always renew their membership, but you do get a link and you vote online, 
And we have 40,000 members, and I would say 20% maybe vote. I mean, that's pretty... It's better than the general population, I feel better like. Than, I guess so. It's, um, but usually the, the people who become presidents um, have served on one or more of the various committees and um, usually on council. So council, council is the board, essentially. Uh, an active board. It's not just a board of directors. And so there are eight councillors, evenly divided by gender, and a treasurer, and an incoming treasurer, and a past treasurer, incoming secretary, secretary, past secretary, etc. In fact, uh, one of the secretaries will be here tomorrow, Gina. Hmm. Oh, great. Terrigiano. And um, the uh, Goings on on the council, or we have to oversee the budget, but the budget is controlled both by the, or the budget is set by the staff, and also there is a finance committee and an investment committee. We have a nice investment basis, or savings and basis, basis, I should say. Um, we have a public information, a public education and communications committee. Um, and uh, we have a wonderful program committee, as I just mentioned. We have incredible um, committee um, that does uh, professional development. That's mushroomed, and we can talk about that in a minute, um, both in, in graduate training, postdoc training, careers. Um, and we have a, a committee that, that is the Government and Public Affairs Committee, most interestingly, we just merged the membership committee, which sounds sort of boring, with sounds like membership, with the International Affairs Committee, which was kind of difficult to enact things, into something called the Global Membership Committee. And interestingly, uh, through our efforts, our successful efforts at outreach and education, that's Brain Awareness Week, and also our uh, every country in the world says, how do we actually enact and get involved people in talking to legislators and going to the Hill. Um, the FENS, which is the Federation of European Neuroscience uh, Societies, and um, I was just in Australia, the Australian Neuroscience Society, want us to help them uh, organize um, visits to their legislators and how to talk to their legislators. We're training the young people. We have a fellowship program um, to learn about science policy. We're expanding all of those efforts at outreach, both both in terms of policy and education of, of the public in why we do science and K through 12 um, education. That That has mushroomed in the last years. And so if you're president, you revel in this, uh, and if you have ideas, you can help promote them through the committees. And so when I was concerned, to say the least, about the uh, imbalance of the, the um, uh, placing the abstracts in the right categories, I, I first I wrote a memo, and I was told that that's not the way you do it. You have to suggest it, maybe, to the program committee and let them own it and... Mm. Develop it, and so you're you're not really you're kind of like almost like a president of the university. You have all these various sectors to help you do things. You work very closely with the executive director, who's Marty Segezi, who's been with the society for 14 years, and kind of an interesting phenomenon. 
We also oversee the journal, and we don't oversee it, but we hear about how the Journal of Neuroscience is doing. We established a new journal, eNeuro. So you get very involved, and you're asked to do all sorts of things. Like one great thing was that I got to go to the White House um, for Obama's announcement of the Brain Initiative, which was positively thrilling. That's amazing. Um, I went to the Hill three times, and the society trains you in what to say, how to say it, how to do your <laughs> elevator speech. Um, they um, prep you on who you're going to visit and who the various c- congressmen are. Do you mind me asking why uh, those times you went to the Hill, why, what, on what, uh, for what reasons you, um, you went there? We went on Hill Day, mm-hmm. which the society takes 50 to 70 people, and we go every year. to. Mm-hmm. It's really not going just with your handout, we need more money, but you have to explain why we need to keep our science enterprise healthy, and it's flagged in recent years, um, and what we do. You'd be surprised how even the the most um, the most forward-thinking and supportive legislators have no idea what goes on in the lab, and also don't understand what a PhD is and how <laughs> we need to keep training young people, and why in the states so many young people are leaving leaving so academia. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like it's kind of more like a more of a discussion, just or educating them, I guess, a little bit mm-hmm. about yes. just sort of t- talking to them about what it what it means to be in the Society for Neuroscience and what it means to be a neuroscientist and sort of reminding them basic aspects of yeah. things that we don't necessarily think about every day because we're just in the doing right. it every day. We're doing it every day. We also help them, help educate them. So often you don't really meet with you know, we went to Cory Booker's office because uh, I'm, I'm, I vote in New Jersey. We, we always go to the legislators who are from the state in which you vote, unfortunately, because I went to Rush Holt's office and he was, of course, now editor of Triple of uh, Science Magazine and he's been a great supporter of science and Cory Booker is too, but you often get to meet only with the staffers. Mm-hmm. And so the staffers, we say to the staffers, we can help you, we can help feed you information on what science is and who's doing what research, and, and they're very grateful for that. Um, but many, many lobby, many groups, citizens' groups, uh, disease uh, families with kids with various diseases, there are hundreds of people going to the Hill every day, and the staffers meet with these people and want special things done. We just want global yeah. support. I mean, we want national support for science. And we often say that uh, to the Republicans, for example, that they should join the Neuroscience Caucus, and there is one in the House, uh, sponsored by a Republican and a Democrat. So a lot of it's bipartisan. Anyway, I I learned a lot about the government and a lot about the... We also meet with the the National Institutes of Health leaders, um, and, and you get to encourage what your main interest is, um, and mine was training. So what we see if in graduate programs and continuously at, at places like my institution, Columbia, but at a dozen or so institutions around the country, is that the numbers of students applying to do neuroscience research has really mushroomed. It's always been quite high at Columbia. We got 450 applications for our program this year. And many of these students are 
so interested in doing everything from how we model the brain, computational analysis, using computers, dealing with big data, doing physiology, recording from the brain, developing techniques, down to studying the cells and the molecules, and very interested in disease, in solving neuropsychiatric disorders, um, motor neuron uh, uh, disorders, um, degeneration, and Alzheimer's, etc. And so they come in and they are very excited about doing the research. Many of them do get their own fellowships from the government, and we support them. And um, we're interestingly developing more and more training vehicles. Um, this is not just our program, but um, many programs across the country realize that biology has been very uh, poor in training people how to do simple statistics even. Um, some of this has come out of the dark side of what's going on in science <laughs> yes. now, which is uh, non-replicability of data and, and, and rigor and uh, the absence of rigor and even fraud and so on. But um, So we're developing new programs in that and how to use MATLAB, for example, and do a computer analysis. We're also um, training people much more, training our students in what we call professional skills, you know, how to give a good talk, how to, how to talk to the lay public, how to write for the lay public as well as for science audiences. And um, this is preparing our students to take the PhD and to, to duplicate, replicate ourselves, but more than that, to go out into the world and use, use their talents and, and their abilities to start and finish a research project, which is a skill. Yeah, it's no trivial it's pretty, ability. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I mean, coming more full circle from what we started talking about uh, with your beginnings, right? I mean, I'm guessing that when you did your PhD, you weren't getting professional development <laughs> and uh, you no, weren't uh, yeah, having all like being taught how to use the computers and statistics and uh, and uh, computers. <laughs> well, there were there were big ones. They were the called rooms. Yes, they yeah, were yeah. called rooms. <laughs> Making but, a poster also, was probably different. Uh, it's made it harder. So a given student, uh, both in, in doing a thesis and also publishing a paper, has to learn. Um, how to patch clamp a neuron, that is how to record from a single cell physiologically, how to interpret the data, how to, um, if you want to manipulate the cell, you have to learn molecular biology and virology to understand, you know, doing anatomy now, you have to learn virology. And we use rabies virus uh, tools to make uh, labels, jump synapses and give you a circuit. You have to learn um, imaging, really fancy microscopes that you don't, you couldn't buy on your own, that it costs hundreds of thousands <laughs> of dollars, etc., etc. So yeah. any given paper, therefore, is um, almost like a thesis in and of itself, many sure. chapters. And it's very difficult to get things published now because they're... They, do you do you feel like uh, not just on the training side, but you know you were you were the uh, in charge of admissions for uh, ten years or so, I think, right, uh, in Columbia? I mean, the applications that you're seeing and the applications that you're taking in, the people, the resumes that you're looking at when people are applying to grad school and when you're meeting mm -hmm. with grad students, are you looking for something now that you did not to think to look for ten years ago? I mean, other than you know, uh, not just like quality of applicant, but but 
Do you yeah. feel like people need to be more realistic about the state of neuroscience right now? Or do, maybe do they have to be interested in the more global perspective? So they can't write in and say, I only want to do patch. I only want to record from a single neuron no. and nothing else, right? Uh, neither of those. We look for... <laughs> we look for um, well, one new phenomenon... Um, not even true over the years and the year that you came in, Joe, but uh, is that mostly all of our applicants have a year or two research experience. They've worked as a kind of assistant or I don't really want to call them techs, but we call them technicians uh, or helped out in a lab and either done their own research project. Often if they've done that and they've really just been a technical piece, you know, pair of hands, it doesn't not really what we're looking for. We're looking for somebody who actually has some either talents, desires, or experience in carrying out research. And often the students now who come in stray from undergraduate school are handicapped in that sense. So we look for that. And we also, uh, if someone feel, well, a European, uh, internationally, if you know you want to go work for a certain professor, you say, I want to go work, you write to that professor and, and see if they'll accept it you into his lab, and that's what how you get in. In our case, we say you have to do three rotations through three different labs, and it's both for your benefit and also for the lab to figure out if you're a good match. And so it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about how we've changed our admissions um, points of view, but we do that. Um, we also, I think the students themselves are often coming in concerned about what they're going to do at the other end. Some of them say, I'm interested in science policy. And I think a few years ago, we would have said, don't come here. But now <laughs> we have two students in the who are second years who are so interested in it. They've already been to the Hill and they want to set up a seminar course in how to do better outreach and so on. Hmm. And we have a chapter of the Society of Neuroscience in New York that's been revitalized because of this. So we're actually looking for people who want to do extra things and who have other talents. And we wouldn't have done that. So thank you for asking the question. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carol, thank you so much for joining us today. This was thank a good. really eye-opening conversation. Good. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast. 